Hi, this is Vanessa Sunshine. Hi, this is Alicia. Hi, I'm Georgia Love. I'm Osha Ginsberg. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, you are on the Bachelor of Hearts podcast. What do you do with an arts degree? I'm still not sure I know. I skipped three years worth of lectures just to binge watch awful shows. There must be some scholarship for accruing worthless knowledge. It's my only talent, honey. That and losing money. Let your excess hex debts rest and then just join us while we start on our bachelor. And welcome to Bachelor of Hearts Ancient Kistory, the Bachelor podcast that asks ye olde question, <laughs> what's the Bachelor? I have never heard of it. I am from 2002 and I don't know about what that is. Oh my God, you've got so much. You've got so much to learn. My friend, <laughs> Xavier Rubetsky Noonan, how are you? Hey. My friend, Max Quinn, I'm doing really well. This is very exciting. (laughs) This is a brand new thing for us. Right. We've been doing this podcast for, I want to say, 15,000 years. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But today we are taking a look way back into the past. We're hopping into a time machine and traveling back to the before times. Ah, it was simpler back then, you know? We didn't have... uh, Season two of The Bachelor. Very, very, <laughs> very salient we point. Have, we didn't have The Bachelorette yet. Mm-mm. That would come afterwards. And and so on and so on. <laughs> yeah, look, this is our first attempt at taking a look at where we came from, the past mm. seasons of The Bachelor. Traditionally on this podcast, we cover The Bachelor Australia. Now we're opening it up. To the world. Xavi, I don't know. There's just something about the year 2021 that says to me, see the world. (laughs) I thought you were going to say there's something about the year 2021 that makes you go, God, wasn't it better at some point? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if my overarching, like, uh, thematic message for this miniseries will be that 2002 was in all ways better than 2021. That's true, because we will be able to explore through the years other seasons that take place at other times. Right. And it, it could well be that we learned throughout doing this season that 2002 was, in fact, deeply cursed and fucked up in just slightly different <laughs> in its ways. Own way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fact, that's what I hope we learn. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, spoiler alert for the episode you're about to hear, listener. Uh, that, that, that might come up a bit. Okay. So, if this is your first time with us, The Bachelor of Hearts, hello. What are we? Who are we? My name is Max Quinn. That's Xavier Rebetsky Noonan. We are two best friends who love talking batchy. Specifically, what we like to do is talk about the television product, how the characters are created, how the narrative is drawn out, and maybe what that says about us as a society if we draw that long a bow. That's kind of we what like we're here to do. We like to pontificate a little. We yeah. do. We really do. <laughs> and that is what we're here to do back in time. What was happening in 2002 in your life, Xavi? Uh, what? I would have been in like year three or year four. I don't even know. What were your I have passions? no fucking clue. My passions in year three. Yeah, I liked being the funny kid. Okay. Um, truly though, I don't even remember. I guess I read books and stuff. Yeah, I feel like I was an unbearable child, and no one told me. I just think that I was probably 
Have you seen the television ad? And I'm sure there's a million of them. The one that I'm going to call out is for St. George's Bank, where there's a really mm. precocious girl and she's like chasing the the dragon that is the emblem of that bank um, up, mm. a, up a slide or something like that. And she's got this real smarminess to her and she knows she's like, she knows she's good and she wants you to know about it. I feel like I was that child it's just that i had no justification for um thinking that i was good in any way i just did yeah i wonder if if uh 2002 is in my bad era as well <laughs> i have a feeling it was i was going through some stuff around that time Yeah, right okay you know transitioning from being uh born to being alive or whatever i don't know yeah yeah man to be honest with you i'm, I'm kind of still working on that and we've got a lot to mm. work through here on the boh pod Look, the two of us were not watching The Bachelor when it premiered. Absolutely not. If anything, this is kind of a, a time capsule. This show presents so many elements that are now gone from the culture. Mm-hmm. I think it is interesting as a reflection of the time period in which it was made, but also interesting, of course, as a reflection of the many ways that The Bachelor franchise has changed since then. That's kind of exactly what we're here to do. And before we get there, I think that it will be time for us to talk through a little bit of news that's come up in the Bachelor Australia community. Xavi, what do you got? Okay, so first up, this week, Bachelor Australia. Are you okay? There's a moth. (laughs) Hold on. No, can we interview the moth? Could be a good get for us. Moth. Should I talk? Oh, he's taking his headphones off. That's okay. This is just me time. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's sitting back down. He looks good. I think that. I think that turning off the light either. Um, it either fooled me or it fooled him. Okay, so one of you will fly out of the room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll make a determination later in the episode as to who that will be. Listeners, stick around. I can't wait. This week. Bachelor Australia Season 9 star Laura O'Loughlin spoke to Yahoo Lifestyle for an interview in which she opened up about the realities of her experience on the show. In the piece, she touched on the new social media contracts, which the women were in fact asked to sign after filming had begun, as well as selective editing and and producer manipulation. For example, Laura was not... (laughs) Why can't I read? I gotta make it a little bigger. For example, Laura was told that the girls have to make the first move with Jimmy, whilst Jimmy was told not to kiss her after a lecture from his sister and cousin when they visited the mansion. It's a great piece of reporting that I encourage our listeners to read. Laura's words provide some much-needed context to the very one-sided portrayal that we got to see on the show, which goes to show that, as always, portrayal is not the same as reality. It remains to be seen whether Laura's words will encourage any other members of the cast to speak out, or whether there will be more opportunities for Laura to share her much-valued perspective. Yeah, look, we, I think, uh, loved Laura on this season, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what she might have to say in the future. Absolutely. Shortly after this interview was published, the lead and victor of this season, if you choose to call it that, <laughs> Jimmy and Holly, engaged their legion of new fans with a QA in their Instagram stories, in which they played their cards pretty close to the chest, answering 36 questions from fans and mostly using them as a springboard for some relatable millennial humor. Great. 
Jimmy reveals that his, quote, favorite behind the scenes moment was after his very first date with Holly, when she came up to him and said, this just got really real. And that is pretty cute. That is cute. But at a few points, the couple gets serious. So when asked, did Jimmy's sister and cousin really tell him to stop kissing girls after they came to visit? Seems a little pointed. Jimmy Mm. says, I did hear that, but no, rubbish. That never happened. When he's asked the hardest part of watching it back, Jimmy says, for me, it was watching Holly get thrown under the bus by some not so nice girls. That was tough and I couldn't even stick up for her. Now, far be it from me to assume motive, but it does seem that they are towing the company line and not allowing any cracks to form in the narrative as presented in the show. Holly also laughed off the assumption that she was a Trump supporter before underlining that no judgment to anyone, but I don't plan on sharing my political beliefs. Got to keep the heartland happy. Hang on to those followers. How about some good Mm. news? Give me some good news. So in international news, get out your geography books, folks, because The Bachelor is already in Canada. But now the full cast list for the inaugural season of Bachelor in Paradise Canada has just been announced. In addition to returning fan favorites from Canada's local versions of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, of which there have been three and one seasons respectively. Crazy. Not a big pull (laughs) to pull from. This season will also see a handful of guests from down south with six cast members from previous seasons of the US show helping kick off the festivities. And one of them, of particular interest to Australian viewers, is Alex Bordyakov, who became known as American Alex on 2019's second season of Bachelor in Paradise Australia. I remember. We were calling him Amex. Uh, Amex was a gentle presence in contrast to the other men in Paradise that year, and he provided some uniquely American eye candy as well. (laughs) And uh, sadly, his relationship with fellow US blow-in Caroline Lunny ended a few months after their stint on the beach came to a close. It remains to be seen whether Alex will have more luck at what is being referred to as Camp Paradise, which takes place at a secluded lakeside love nest somewhere in the wilds of the Great North. In addition to these returning players, the cast is also stacked with newcomers from, quote, Bachelor Nation, who have never appeared in the Bachelor franchise before. Oh, clean skins. Right. A whopping 14 members of the cast will make their debut on Paradise. That rules. Who could possibly say where the producers of Bachelor in Paradise Canada got that idea from? Well, I mean, it's almost as if they're filming a season of Love Island, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But I just love this. You know, last week we did our our episode talking about, like, ways that the Bachelor franchise can continue to grow and develop and that the Australian show can keep existing. And I think throwing our hat in the ring internationally, not that this is exactly what's happening here, but, like, we need to get involved in all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Who are we sending, though? Who's our export to the Bachelor? Big question. Big question. Uh, I think the Canadians would love Carly Hodges. Oh, I agree. I think that might be even a better result for Carly Hodges than the uh, the proposed Bachelorette lead spot. Um, both good. I mean, both good, of course. Let's not take either away from her, to be honest. No. And I don't know if she's interested or if she wants to go yeah. to Canada or anything like that. Yeah, flick her off to Canada. She'll love it. Yeah. I'm just thinking of like people who you really can't fault in any way. 
And mm. Carly is in that list because I think Canada is one of those types of places too. I don't know. Have you got a pick? I'm trying to think of a single good man. <laughs> well, moving on. <laughs> Very good. It is almost time for us to dive in to our inaugural You got recap. to say it this time. It's great stuff. Yeah. Of The Bachelor Season 1, Episode 1. I left the space. It's got a, I, I feel like I should say The Bachelor Australia. We're going to leave a pause, listeners. Just observing a moment of silence. Maybe you can all <laughs> quietly uh, recite the Pledge of Allegiance to yourself in that moment, you know. Whatever works. Yeah, we, look, you can do what you like in that time. That time is your own. Yeah. Before we get there, I think it's important for us to do a little scene setting because not only is this the first season of The Bachelor, it's also one that arrives at an apex for reality TV, in my opinion. Mm. It is of an entirely different time, but it also kind of is the, like, well, I, I use the word apex because there's so much stuff that kind of came before it that really built to this point of allowing this nice man, who might be a serial killer, who can say, <laughs> on We have to at least start with good intentions about him. I have, no, I have no preconceptions about whether or not this man is now in jail. I just want to throw that out there. You know what? This is an important part of scene setting. Before we even talk about the history of the real world, we need to talk mm. about the fact that I have seen this season before. Mm. I have tried to watch- I've been trying to watch all of The Bachelor, which is okay. a, a healthy thing that any uh, reasonable adult <laughs> should do, pandemic or no yeah, pandemic. Lockdown. Yeah, lockdown. Uh, yeah. But you and Max Quinn are watching this for the first time week by week. That's correct. I watched my first ever episode of season one this week. So what that means is that I have no idea what's happening, and I'm purposely also not Googling anything. I haven't been on the Reddit. This man, The Bachelor, is who has been presented to me for 40 minutes Right. And also, if you're listening at home, I have seen this. I know what happens, but I am not interested in spoiling it. So I think it would be fun if you want to watch along as well. There are resources mm -hmm. we can do that. There's a great one called bachelorarchive.com. There are many other ones all over the spectrum of legality, uh, wherever you may be located, whenever it is. Legality is a continuum. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, uh, We all uh, exist at some point on that uh <laughs> <laughs> that spectrum. So we have come a long way. Uh, video games have come a long way since Pac-Man and uh, <laughs> dating, TV, reality, all this stuff has come a long way. So firstly, I just want to acknowledge a couple of resources that I've used extensively for research for this week's episode, um, both of which are terrific. I really recommend people check out. There is a lot more interesting information than we could possibly hope to fit in this podcast. So firstly, I just want to uh, shout out the book Bachelor Nation Inside the World of, a of America's... I nearly said Australia. Close. Bachelor Nation Inside the World of America's Favorite Guilty Pleasure by Amy Kaufman. And secondly, a really great article by Jada Yuan on The Cut called A History of the Bachelor by the People Who Lived It. Cool. Um, but Max, I think if you read either of them, you will be spoiled. So you might have to hold off. Yeah, this seems like the sort of thing that I'm going to be purchasing in mm, three years. Yeah, maybe maybe so. So The Bachelor, obviously, is a, is a landmark moment, but it is by no means the first dating show. The idea dates back to at least the 1960s with Chuck Barris's The Dating Game and The Newlywed Game. Mm. You might have heard of them. Yeah, there was a serial killer. <laughs> that is actually, funnily, one of the most well-known things about... I think that was The Newlywed Game? Oh, no, maybe... No, it was The Dating Game, right? It was The Dating Game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, they're both um, game shows with a revolving door model where new contestants play every week. Sometimes they're serial killers, sometimes they're not. 
That was not that was not on the pitch. Chuck Barris didn't walk into fucking NBC or whatever and be like, I have a brilliant idea. You're going to love it. It'll be all the talk of the town. I also don't think he talked like that. Anyway. No. <laughs> Gimmicks were the lifeblood of these early quiz shows, but Barris's had the hook that it was the first show to delve into its contestants' personal and romantic lives. It also did have a serial killer. You're right. We should, I mean, <laughs> look, I honestly think the dating game would make for an incredible ancient histories episode or series or something down the line, okay. but uh, we have to keep moving. In the 1990s, the genre that we think of as modern reality TV really began to be solidified. Networks were realizing that they could guarantee huge ratings while sidestepping the need to pay for writers and costume designers and actors. So you have shows like The Real World and Road Rules and Cops, and they're all getting huge ratings as well as pushing the limits of what's acceptable on TV. MTV also had a big hit with Singled Out, which was raunchier and louder than anything else on TV. It was hosted by Playboy model Jetty McCarthy and radio DJ Chris Hardwick. Wow. Uh, The show repackaged the earlier sort of model, the dating game type show, but it was- it was for a Gen X fucking spring break audience, you know? Cool. It was like 50 people in a studio just all hooting and hollering. And, you know, it's a it's a pretty wild time. Um, and eventually that show saw celebrities like Jennifer Love Hewitt and even a young Fergie compete for <clears throat> love. Now, we should clarify. It's Fergie, the, the duchess who <laughs> married prince andrew right is that that's yeah, the fergie that's where they met yeah, yeah that's where they met that's right yeah glad we ironed that out um but then we reached the early 2000s and this is this is a really crucial point because this is when we're seeing huge hits like survivor and big brother and fear factor and they're on network tv rather than being on cable on mtv something like that and they're bringing unscripted shows like this to a much bigger audience than ever before as well as branching out into international franchises In 2001, Fox has a huge hit with Temptation Island, in which four established couples- I mean, this show is incredible. Yeah. So four established couples were left on an island with a bunch of hot singles to see who could resist the temptation to stray. UPN tried their luck with Chains of Love, in which a man or a woman is literally chained to four members of the opposite sex (laughs) over four days and night. They can remove three of those contestants one at a time, and they earn prize money along the way. <laughs> and, you know, cue this moral panic about how culture is going down the tubes. Maybe you agree. I don't know. I mean, maybe you I, I, you already listened to the first 20, 30 minutes of this Bachelor podcast. So maybe you're right there with us. But uh, it's such a bizarre moral panic. Though. Oh, yeah. Don't you think? Like, I, I tend to think that a lot of these moral panics arise out of... Um, the fear of something that is just out of sight. You know, I'm talking about witchcraft. I'm talking about um, they're performing satanic rituals satanic on panic. our children yeah. in daycares. What I what I mean is this is a pure reflection of quote unquote us. And mm. we as a society freaked the fuck out at this because particularly when we, we were talking about things like the real world, when you are talking about things like road rules Mm. um you're talking about things that are a bit more aggressive we're looking at people who for the first time are kind of in your face are a little bit more brash it's a different kind of television casting than we are used to and this is purportedly a reflection of 
of who we are. And I think that that is one of the harbingers that has really carried through over and over the years. I want to just flag a couple of other 90s reality shows just to see if they made your list oh buddy i mean we could talk about this all day and i gladly will okay um did you have the crocodile hunter on your list oh you know what i didn't that's a great example though and often overlooked australian reality show hey that's great what year did it start do you know started airing in 1996 wow yeah and so they made seven seasons up until steve steve owen's death in 2007 the way that we start to move through this, we start to see MTV looking at things like True Life. Do you remember True Life? I don't know True Life. This continues, this one, to this day. Mm. True Life, I have a great big ward on my head. Um, oh, and right. They, like, follow documentary style through the lives of this person for 40 minutes. But what it is, right, is this evolution, I would guess, of this documentary style of storytelling. Mm. And what The Bachelor, I think, marks for me is the Venn diagram overlap of that documentary and love competition yeah. that I think that we're sort of starting to drive out here. That's a great point, yeah. Well, enter Mike Fleiss. This guy, he's the creator of The Bachelor. You've probably seen him in the credits. You probably went like, what? Who's that? He's This guy's still getting checks? What the fuck? Uh, Fleiss had done some work throughout the 90s on shows with names like Totally Hidden Video, as well as helping to put together clip show specials with names like World's Deadliest Volcanoes, <laughs> World's Scariest Police Shootouts, and Shocking Behavior Caught on Tape. By the way, sounds fucking good. His, I, I'm mostly focusing on his career here, but he seems like a very interesting and disturbed kind of figure, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, but Fleiss's biggest ratings coup came in the year 2000 with Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire? This is arguably the most direct predecessor to The Bachelor, and it was a one-night special in which 50 women competed for the hand of a mystery multimillionaire. This guy's name was Rick Rockwell. He was an actor, I'm sorry, he was a writer and comedian who turned out to be worth about one and a half million dollars. Okay. So, you know, it counts. Over 20 million people tuned in to watch, you know, because- it was like nothing else that had ever really been seen. It was a huge spectacle. Rockwell proposed to a stranger on da- national TV. Uh, yeah. It was a certified smash hit. Everything about it was huge. Distressingly, two weeks after the special aired, news broke that Rockwell had physically abused an ex-girlfriend who oh, now gosh. had a restraining order against him. Um, oh, no. Pictures of his house surfaced and they were like, he's got an outdoor toilet. This is not a mansion, you know, like that kind of everything began to crumble. He was also like, I, I think I read that he um, his motives got called into question when it, it became clear that he had tried many get rich quick schemes along the way. <laughs> he always wanted to be famous. He was like, he, he, he attempted a world record, a Guinness world record attempt or something. He's just like a guy who was waiting for his moment and would take any oh, chance. This is a podcast in and of itself. Oh, I think? mean, I would love to do an episode about this. Uh, but yeah, the couple broke up. The scandal was national news. It was a big deal. So Mike Fleiss needed to pivot. And he wanted to pitch a show that was so big and so distracting that nobody would think about multimillionaire ever again. And thus, The Bachelor was born. Believe it or not, the idea came to him pretty quickly. It was basically just an attempt to like 
stretch it out, you know, uh, allow the mm. love story to evolve over a few weeks. It was an attempt to class up the elements that had worked in the previous show, this gaudy spectacle, but, you know, he was adding little touches of romance and the roses love. and the mansion and, and yeah, just allowing things to play out over time and that sort of thing. So they have this manhunt for America's most eligible single man. And the casting department finds this dude, Alex Michelle. We'll talk about him more, obviously. He's a 31-year-old Harvard grad who majored in history and literature, made the water polo team, earned his MBA at Stanford. Rich, white, charming. Mike Fleiss described him to the New York Times as the kind of guy you lose a girl to. The guy with the good family and money and the handsome grin. Fleiss is a bit of a piece of shit. I feel like we're we're allowed to say that. We're definitely allowed yeah. to say that, I think. But he did create the thing, which is our mm. cultural lifeblood. Uh, <laughs> so, look, I mean, there are so many elements about the origin of The Bachelor that I want to talk about. I think maybe it would be better to parcel them out a little bit week by week. Because um, we've got, you know, fucking Chris Harrison. You know, we've also got plenty of stuff to talk about in this episode. We've got Chris Harrison. We've got the mansion. We've got the oh women. God, there's so much still to come. We've got the producers who help shape the show. You know, they brought in people from like soap operas and, you know, just trying to add more of that, as you said, like that sort of documentary style, sort of believable style um, filmmaking in yeah. with the uh, very gamey, you know, uh, experiment that that they also presented as you know you're right and i think that experiment is definitely the right word for it because at this time reality was not the beast that it was you know you and i talking about things like the real world and survivor as like you know these these landmarks for reality television big brother among them but i thought it might just for context listeners i'm going to read you out some shows that didn't exist at this time, okay? So this is like, these things all form part of the reality TV cadence that we now, um, well, I guess that we absorb and are used to on a week-to-week basis. So you're telling me that Making It Australia hadn't premiered yet? No, it hadn't. (laughs) This is, yeah, this is pre-Making It Australia. It is also pre-things like this, okay? The Biggest Loser hadn't premiered yet. Wow. Date my mom. Remember that? I do remember that. That feels that was a great one. prehistoric. But the fact that it hadn't started yet. It feels ancient, but it happened in 2004 and ran for two years on MTV. Speaking of MTV, mm. Punked hadn't prepared yeah, yet. Yeah. Super Nanny didn't yeah, exist. Wow. The Apprentice did not exist. Australian Idol did not exist. Dancing with the Stars, X Factor, there's so much here. Say Yes to the Dress, gone. Laguna Beach, gone. All of the Ink series, all of the Real Housewives, The Simple Life had not happened yet. Uh, The last two that I want to call out are my big, fat, obnoxious fiancé, which I've not seen, (laughs) but I suddenly want to very much. Sounds good. Uh, And also, just the one that's incredibly fun to say, The Josh Mo Show. (laughs) The Josh Mo Show. And this is, you're listing a lot of reality TV shows that I think most of our listeners would probably be at least faintly aware of. This is not to mention a bunch of reality TV shows that did exist before this time that we don't hear about or think about ever again. You know, we're talking about things like Survivor and stuff for context, but- there are, you know, it was not a surefire, like, bet, you know? ABC was a little hesitant to um, to make this show. I think Fleiss had to, like, take a loan out to, <laughs> to make this episode that we're about to talk about, you know? It was, it was not a guaranteed hit. Uh, it was a very different... Because now it's like anybody can have a TV show, you know? Mm-hmm. You fucking... You and I have a podcast. Well, that's true. I was going to say, you were, we worked on a TV show, but that's very mean. I did. I did do it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it wasn't your TV show, but still. 
Uh, well, should have been. Uh, it, it was a different time. I think, you know, and they don't make them like they used to. How do we set this up anymore? Well, I think we've done we've done basically enough. I think maybe we should just dive in <laughs> to our recap of The Bachelor Cricket Cricket <laughs> Season 1, Episode 1. It's March 25th, 2002. You're sitting on the sofa, you're cuddling up, you're flicking around on the channels. What of the American Broadcasting Corporation? I assume that's what it stands for. I have no idea. What have they got in store for me this evening? Well, we begin with a frantically edited collage of short clips from the season to come as host Chris Harrison narrates, Once upon a time, there was a charming young bachelor searching for the women of his dream. Oh, it should be woman. It should be woman. <laughs> That's funny. Searching for the woman of his dreams and 25 women trying to prove they're the one. And I think this is telling, this is the first line of dialogue of this season, and we're already selling the idea that this is a modern day fairy tale. It's right there from the first line of dialogue. Will he propose? Who will he choose? Will she say yes? Find out on The Bachelor. We pan across the horizon behind Fair Malibu where we lay our scene. Before the camera lands on our host in a baggy tan suit and blue shirt. He begins, hi, I'm Chris Harrison. And no, I'm not the bachelor. I am a happily married man. Now, I don't want to begin our recap by making light of the fact that Chris Harrison is now no longer happily married. Uh, He and his wife split after 18 years together in 2012. But oh, no. I do think it is interesting, and I this is I'm not like joking. I do think it's interesting that the couple have cited distance as one of the reasons for the split, because mm. Chris Harrison is so frequently away from home working on The Bachelor and its ever-growing extended universe. Is this like does he know somewhere behind this, you know, innocent little sheepish smile as he begins hosting the show that it might tear apart this marriage that he he loves so much? There will be many moments like this where we stop down and go like, is this the most important thing anyone's ever said on this show? (laughs) Uh, Chris walks towards the camera, a la that great Nathan for you uh, scene, um, tells us that this show isn't like your ordinary relationship show. The stakes are considerably higher here. This is about something real, something permanent. You know, the whole till death do you part thing. (laughs) And then we're introduced to Alex Michelle, The Bachelor, with some photos of him as a child, a taped interview with his parents, and another with one of his friends. And uh, Harrison narrates, as a kid growing up on the East Coast, he certainly didn't have the look of a future ladies' man, but thanks to contact lenses and countless hours in the swimming pool, he started to come into his own. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) Were we pre-glasses in, like... With the amount of sight bias. Right, yeah. Just the fact that, like, wow, this kid looks like a piece of shit. What a stupid little nerd. <laughs> this fucking four Yeah, eyes. it's like the bullying that, like, 1950s teenagers do. We learn about his achievements as a young athlete, a scholar, class valedictorian, and there's a real focus on his education and his achievements. Mm. Um, today, he works as a management consultant at a top-tier firm. I heard he also graduated from one of Canada's top business schools with really good grades. 
Yeah, that's right. I do think it's interesting just to think about this. This is something that is focused on throughout this episode and through this season is that we are really setting up these people as like very dateable, like the types of people you would really want to date. What a cat. Yeah. In a way that does not. I mean, look. People, people on The Bachelor are, are, you know, charming and charismatic and uh, usually very, very beautiful, but it does not seem to matter that much, like, what they think about stuff or what they know or, you know, what's going on inside their heads that much, really. No, it's, it's placing um, an amount of, well, an amount of emphasis on status as it existed then versus status as I would suppose it exists now, which as we know is followers on Instagram. Right. That's true. You can also feel Mike Fleiss's touch on the line, nobody's perfect, but after conducting a series of in-depth background checks, (laughs) our bachelor seems like the real deal. He's like, not like that other show. That wasn't me, by the way. Nope. Didn't do that. Nothing to do with me. Harrison walks out of the front door of the mansion saying, we've gone to great lengths to keep his identity a secret. None of the bachelorettes have ever met him or even know his name, but all that's about to change. And I'm like, it will go on to be a huge asset for the storytelling of this show if someone does know this guy or does Mm -hmm. know his name or recognize him or whatever. It's interesting how that has gone 180 degrees in the other direction oh my god we've yeah completely evolved over over the 20 years the other thing that struck me so early in this was just the stakes of it you know um the the sentence that chris harrison says where he says our bachelor will propose marriage and it's Mm. like in six weeks yeah jesus fucking christ like that is so different to the product that we are presented now yeah totally i mean Honestly, in American Bachelor, that's always been a really big focus, but I think yeah. that's because of the groundwork that's being laid here. Mm, um, mm. Over the next several seasons of Bachelor and Bachelorette in the US, it becomes a huge focus. They're like, if mm. you're not proposing, we will not cast you. Like, we Fuck need off. a fucking promise, you know? That's kind of it, right? He's like, I'm ready to get married now. And we see Chris Harrison sit down with him and he's like, are you going to get married in six weeks? And the guy's like, yes. I guess so. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a limousine pulls up in the driveway with Alex Michelle. Did you notice anything strange about this scene where Alex comes out of the limousine? No. There are a couple of things here that caught my eye. For starters, okay. it's clearly shot during the afternoon, which I have only ever seen once on the New Zealand Bachelor, and it felt really weird then too. It's like broad daylight, oh. the sun is slightly setting. Yeah. Because it's always nighttime otherwise. Well, I mean, this is lesson learned. We know that they filmed that over a number of nights mm. now, mm. these limo sequences. This is fascinating because it seems like they might have tried to do this all over the course of one night. I think you're probably right. Like, the, they were like, yeah, we can do it in a night. And then they were like, oh, we have to make oh, it shit, seem like no, we, we can do, do it that. in a night. Yeah. Because this is the other thing about making a TV show. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. Right. Exactly. You know, like, th- this is the where you are, where you're trying to sort of go, okay, cool, and we'll do this, and then we'll shift this transition here, Mm. and then uh, the talent will do X or Y, and the audience will respond in such a way. And then when they don't, you're like, okay, shit, why didn't that work? (laughs) And what do we do to encourage that 
the next time around. Yeah. The benefit that uh, I guess we have had in, in making a show in the past is that we would be filming on consecutive days. So we might be able to try something the next day. Mm. This is like, you get one go at this. This is critical. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's not like we, you get to go back and reshoot an audience or superimpose whatever. Yeah. This is like, you have one set period of time. They're not going to meet twice. Right. Here you go. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to highlight is that the driveway itself is the most barren, like boring <laughs> residential, like it's clearly made of concrete instead of the like beautiful, highly decorated cobblestone path that we're used to. Yeah, because this is pre-mansion, right? Yeah. Like we're not in the bachelor mansion as we have come to know it. Right. They have hen- they've rented out a place, you know? Yeah, I think at different times he calls it a mansion and a villa. So maybe we can go with the bachelor villa. Kind of like that, just to delineate it. Mm. Yeah. Um, the other most important difference between this driveway shot, which I'm really drilling down on as an important driveway shot, is that <laughs> it is bone dry. So- We are used to, I don't know if you've even picked up on this from the face that you're making. We are used to a soaking wet uh, driveway or path that all of the bachelor and bachelorette people walk down and ruin their long-tailed dresses or whatever. uh, Because at one point it was decided that that looked better to have the light reflecting off it and it made it look more glamorous and sparkly. And honestly, I agree. This looks like fucking dog shit. That's awesome, right? That, But that's, again, one of those things where some person has probably made a dramatic entrance that involves water, and they're like, oh, that looks way better. Yeah, you're totally right. And now we just do that from now so on. So I went back through the archives, uh, as I do, and I couldn't find the soaking wet stone that we know and love until season 11 in 2007. Wow. Which is crazy, because I kind of, I pictured Mike Fleiss as this guy who had it all <laughs> worked out. and was like, you gotta have it soaking wet, otherwise it looks <laughs> like crap. Not the case, or at least not not yet. I think uh, that's one of the interesting elements that uh, that uh, evolves over time. Yeah, definitely. Because as much as so many of the key elements are here from episode one, and we'll touch on a lot of them, so much of this is shooting from the hip, and you can just tell in the way that it is put together. Yeah, and I love the audacity of like you know we have a thing called a cocktail party and we have a thing called a rose ceremony and like, you will just accept this. You know, it doesn't stop yep. down and explain them too much. Um, but then there are also things like, well, I don't want to blow them, but there are things that happen in this episode that they're like, you've just got to swallow that this is part of the experience. And you go, well, okay. Right, right, right. There are weeks of iteration and production meetings between writers and producers and and directors every kind of person who could work on the creative impetus of a television show that go into okay cool this is what this thing is and we're going to call it this and this is the universe that we are asking you to buy into right and as a producer your job is to get the the women in this case to really experience the world the first time around exactly in the way that you want them to. Mm. And that is a fucking challenge. Yeah, because in future seasons of The Bachelor, not only has production evolved and iterated on itself, but also people have expectations. You know, people who come on the show have ever seen it before and they get the impression of what is meant to be done. There are social mores and there are, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a dress code that seems to settle in at some point that isn't necessarily locked in at this point. Everybody's kind of just like looking around, making sure everybody's doing kind of the same thing they're doing here. 
Right, right. That's exact, exactly what it is. And these women are so fascinating for this reason. You know, like, I can't wait till we start to see the evolution of drama in The Bachelor. But it is so interesting how pivotal these women are in setting expectations for the future for the people who will come in and do this for the next 20 years. Right. Because at this point, making a pilot episode is fucking tough. Yeah. And all just the, ask the people, the people who the made the season nine of Australian Bachelor. We just sorry, I need to interrupt you for that. <laughs> but no, but you're right. Like the people behind the scenes are scrambling just to get it to work, just to get them to say something, just to believe that we are here right. and in the moment, and for them to achieve some facets yeah. of of a show that have been long standing for twenty years. Yeah within the first episode is pretty fucking remarkable. Yeah, and it speaks to the power of some of those elements that are just, like, they won't go away because they fucking rule, you know? They work. Right, exactly, yeah. So anyway, here's an element that has changed. Alex approaches and he's wearing an unbuttoned, baggy, just so fucking baggy, grey jacket, uh, black slacks and a black shirt. It's a, like a T-shirt, like a U-neck. No tux, no tie. He's just a guy. He's just a dude. And uh, Chris Harrison shows him through the mansion saying, if you can't find a woman with all this, as he gestures to the, you know, not quite as nice mansion as what we're used to. He's like, well, come on, you need to stop playing the game. The other thing that happened here that I really liked is that as he's walking towards Chris from the driveway, Mm. we get both sides of it. Mm. So we see him walk uh, from Chris's view. And then we also see it from behind. But when we see it from behind, obviously we don't see the camera in the frame, suggesting that they have cut this walk together twice. Takes. Uh, Chris and Alex sit down to chat with Chris asking, why on earth are you doing this? I was like, you asked me to. Great (laughs) question. Alex says, having time to dedicate to nothing but meeting the right person is a great luxury. And I feel like that sells it really well. There's so much about this that you're just like, what the fuck is going on? Why would anyone do this? Right. But with that right. sentence, you're like, oh, I guess life can get in the way, you know? He articulates himself pretty well in this moment. He's like, look, I'm 31. I've achieved a lot of the stuff that I want to achieve. And now I'm here and I'm ready to find it. And I think that that makes him a, a really suitable lead, at least situationally. Mm. If we're looking at the things about him that are like, he's uh, attractive. He has all these degrees. He's done a whole heap of valedictorian, captain of the swimming team, Mm -hmm. um, doesn't wear glasses anymore. (laughs) Another check on that list is like, has six weeks free and a time that he has decided to pursue love. Yeah, exactly. And it's not, you know, we will talk about this a lot as this series goes on, but like what he is signing up for is quite different to what any other bachelor or bachelorette Fully. Is, is signing up for, you know? He is like, I'll take a chance on whatever this is. Yeah, might see how this goes. Yeah. I'll be the bachelor. Right. And, uh, you know, I'll probably sweep it under the rug if it doesn't go too well or whatever. I don't know if there's a guarantee that this is going to air at this time. My guess would be that they would have gotten a full six-episode order to film this series from top to bottom. Mm. But as the man who's doing this for the first time... Like, you don't know anything about? Do, do you know, Xavi, if this aired in primetime? Was it an off-season thing? Like, where where was this positioned in the schedule? I believe this was primetime. I don't know a huge amount about the American TV market in terms of, like, is this time of year a good time of year to start premiering a show or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they, they put their weight behind it eventually. But you're right. Like, when you are making a show like this particularly for the first time when you're doing a pilot or something, you're like, even if you've been guaranteed that it will air, you're probably guessing 
like, look, this is going to go on at midnight. You know, they're going to bury this. It's not going to be a big yeah. deal, you know. And if it doesn't work, then whatever. Right. And here we are 20 years later talking about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's wild. We're sorry in advance, I guess. <laughs> Chris asks, when it gets down to it six weeks from tonight, can you honestly tell me that you're ready to get down on one knee and pop the question? And Alex says, well, for the right woman, the answer is yes. And so Chris briefs Alex on the women. He says, we have selected 25 fantastic women, two doctors, two lawyers. Ten women have either gotten their master's degrees or in the process of obtaining their graduate degrees. We have a singer, an actress, and even an NBA cheerleader. And I love that even the wacky pick at the end sounds more like qualified, I guess, than a lot yeah. of the people who come on the show now, you know? Oh, my God. We've got a redhead. <laughs> Look, I mean, to be honest, you could probably describe this cast that way as well. but Probably. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, now you have someone who's like, this person's a big fan of snakes. And, uh, you know, <laughs> this person's <laughs> yeah. wearing a big yeah. hat. <laughs> I drive my Holden Commodore down the streets of Tamworth. Yeah, yeah. Which, like, power to you, but, you know, yeah. there's an interesting contrast It's totally different, yeah. So then we get a montage of the casting process, and they show us, like, the print ads and the radio competitions that they use to cast the women, which is incredible. Mm. Uh, and they share some home video submissions from various hopefuls including one woman who just sticks out her really long tongue. Oh, my God. The most giant tongue that I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. I feel like she should apply again now. Like, she would be a big hit. <laughs> <laughs> She's the, got the kind of gimmick that they're probably looking for every season nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Now they're just like, if we could find a long tongue. Yeah, exactly. We've got so yeah. many short tongue women. And they're so interested in diversity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tongue diversity yeah. on The Bachelor. Really important. Do you know what else is striking me at this What's time? What's that? Just the amount of table setting that is required for the format of the show to succeed. Sure. Here. Like, we have not mentioned rose ceremony uh-uh. at this time. They're going to spring that on us later. Like, all this stuff is, is just going to happen later completely out of the blue. But the amount of groundwork that has gone into setting up the audience- buying their way into this universe is fascinating. Right. Whereas you compare that to a show that I've been watching recently, like Are You The One, mm. the way that they do it is like very first episode, day 29, here's some drama. Day 30, here's some more drama. And then we rewind all the way back to episode one and yeah. that's all the scene setting you get. <laughs> yeah. You know, Survivor has had the the classic, um, or 20 Castaways, 39 Days, One Survivor tagline that, mm. um, that has held true pretty much throughout the whole- uh, throughout the whole run of the series, but there's not that quite there's not quite that neat tagline that you can apply to this that sort of says we're doing this, we're doing this, and then this right. is the outcome. Right. Right. Exactly. There's a lot of there's a lot of heavy lifting that needs to get to get you off the ground here. Yeah. Uh sorry, we're not doing Jimmy season anymore. <laughs> uh we see one woman say dating in Los Angeles is a nightmare. And another one saying trying to find a quality man is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Blah. <laughs> It's like some of the most Sex in the City stuff you've ever seen. Oh, Sex in the City season one, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just fucking love this. Like, if you only get to see a tiny part of this episode, make sure it's this part. Because it is the most unfiltered, like, I'm a person from 2001 and I'm trying to be on TV. (laughs) Um, The women who make it to callbacks are given a sneak peek at some photos of Alex, which also uh, sort of... He said that none of them had seen him, but anyway, uh, they all go, ooh, he's H-O-T hot. (laughs) And then the last thing that happens before the limos arrive is a chilling warning from Chris. 
He says, even if you invite a woman to get to know you better, she can turn you down if, well, if she doesn't like you. These are real women and they are really looking for a husband. If they don't think it's you, they will reject your invitation right here on national television in front of the entire country. This is crazy. (laughs) It's so crazy. Because we've both watched this episode. It doesn't happen. That This is built in as a stake. Yeah. For, I mean, I have no fucking idea how many times it's happened throughout the series. Mm. Australian, American, I'm sure it has happened, but it is not a looming threat. And for it to be positioned as one with our historical knowledge mm. is really funny. I think it's great because if you're a first-time viewer of this, it's the first time it's airing, you're like, holy shit, is he going to get- Oh, my God. It, you know, it changes everything. Yeah, everybody's heart's getting broken, left, right, and center, you know? And that, I guess, they learn this lesson pretty quickly, that that heartbreak and torture and <laughs> sadness and misery is kind of the lifeblood of this show in a way. Yeah, definitely. And instead of having this, like, equal power dynamic where, well, she could reject you- like, it's so clear how quickly right. that power dynamic just skews one way and it's all The Bachelor. Right. But I do think this is a bit of a reflection of this thing that we've talked about before. This is kind of the way that I hype this season up to you, mm. is that it's 2002 and there is no Bachelorette. There is no Instagram. There is no influencer culture. There is no, you know, the, the world that we know it is so different. And that changes the stakes of playing this game in the sense totally. that- you are basically going there to actually find a connection. And maybe you're going there to have a weird experience or, you know, you're getting a small paycheck, but probably not a very big one. You get to be on TV. Yeah. You get to say that you did it, basically. Yeah, Um, totally. But, like, that means if you're not keen, if you're not interested, you know, there is not a runners-up prize, you know? If you don't end up winning, that's kind of it, you know? You don't get a bunch of new followers on Instagram. You don't get to sell, like, skinny tummy tees um, or, uh, you know. Teletubby (laughs) tees. Fat tummy hello freshes or whatever. (laughs) Um, So it's it's fascinating to think of the, the way that the women kind of do have more agency at this point. Absolutely. I think it's part of what makes it kind of like staring into this homely historical mirror because at this point not only do they have more agency the drama is also so much more muted because the concept is so honed in Mm. and they are drilling in so hard on he's going to fall in love and propose you know the the Mm. thing that struck me the most as as i was watching this the lack of crazy is what makes it so fascinating compared to now like why is nobody uh screaming or stripping or stripping while (laughs) Screaming. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you've led us directly into a perfect segment, the longest seven minutes of television I have ever seen in my life, in which all 25 women step out of the limo, walk up to Alex, introduce themselves very briefly, and then walk into the house. And, you know, virtually the exact same amount of time is allocated to each and every one of these entrances. And what is notable is just how not notable they are in contrast with what we're used to. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not going to summarize all of the entrances in this recap because they are truly all exactly the same. There's nothing here, even down to Alex the Bachelor himself. Like if we're talking about uh, what might have stayed consistent, you know, Mm. the the intros of the women are, Mm. are so vastly different to what we might expect to see nowadays. Fuck, mm. you see someone coming down on a horse or playing giant chess or whatever it is. You're like, this is The Bachelor. It's par for the course. Right. What is consistent 
is this is a wooden bachelor who approaches every woman and says, hi, I'm Alex, and raises a fucking stilted arm to him, offering nothing, not knowing how to be on the camera. And I'll be really interested to see how they solve this problem moving forward through the seasons, because frankly, it's something that the Australian seasons have never been able to solve. It's a great point. He needs to fucking loosen up. It's true. Yeah. Um, but in the These following, this is your suit, dude. <laughs> it's true. Jesus Christ! Did they? It was a tailor out of the budget, I guess. Like <laughs> Chris Harrison just needs to learn how to sew, I guess. Mm. Um, but okay, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you about every single person who comes in here because there's 25 of them and they are the same. But in the following couple of minutes, I will tell you about all of the women who go home on night one, as well as the top four who make it to the end. And I've thrown in a couple more as decoys, so I don't necessarily just spoil it straight away for you, Maxie. Cool. I wonder, from what I'm about to tell you, based solely on what we learn from these entrances, is there even a hint of who falls into which category? I have have so many thoughts about this. Let's go. Okay, great. Kim is a 24-year-old nanny from Tempe, Arizona. She's up first. She gets a handshake. She gets a quick ITM clip where she says, despite being 24, she's ready to settle down. Trista, 29, is a dancer for the Miami Heat, who says in the moment that she does believe in love at first sight, it just hasn't happened yet. Denise, a 30-year-old doctor from Honolulu, says she's looking for chemistry, and if she doesn't find it, she'll head for the hills. Rachel, a sixth-grade teacher from East Chester, New York, ITMs, my students would not be shocked that I'm doing this, because they think that I'm a fun, wild teacher. Their parents, on the other hand, would get me booted out of school. I'm joking. That's just a joke. (laughs) 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 Wendy, a technology specialist from Dallas, Texas I assume that's like fax machines or something at this point Uh, ITMs, when it comes to meeting men, I'm really shy Christina S., an attorney from Bonita, California Says her brother thinks it's funny that I have to go on TV to find a date I don't think we have heard someone say that for years I know Maybe I think my, my my theory here is just that in the age of online dating, we are all forced to humiliate ourselves way more than this just to oh get a God. date. You know? Yes. We're all on a screen. We're all on someone's screen somewhere. Yeah, exactly. This and is just, this is proto Tinder. Yeah. And, and in a way, like dating on TV has become something uh, we aspire to, you know? Right. Jill, a retail manager from Chicago, ITMs that her parents have told everyone in their small town about their daughter being on the show. Amanda, a 23-year-old event planner, says that people often assume she's very innocent since she's from Kansas. What does that mean? Uh, oh, I can explain that. Okay. Uh, she's from the South. Kansas is like- Oh, I guess so. Down, you know, like, so uh, high Christianity, Southern Baptist, kind of like, you're talking, you're talking down home, you're talking Southern comfort. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. I was thinking about like Wizard of Oz. I was trying to connect the dots to heaven. But she says, quote- I am very open sexually with my partners. One of the craziest things I've ever done was purchase a trapeze for some entertainment. (laughs) Lisa from Dallas ITMs that she can tell men react when they learn she's an attorney, although she says they may just be intimidated that she has a career. Amber, a business development director from LA, is looking for a guy with direction, focus, and knows where he wants to be. Daniela, a neuropsychologist from Seattle, definitely wants children and says that owning a private practice means she can take some time off to raise a family. 
are any of these like huge red flags to you? This is insane. Paula, an insurance representative from Swansea, Massachusetts, ITMs that she was supposed to get married, have kids and pretty much die. I never thought that I would come out to California to meet possibly my husband. That was very grim, weirdly. Jackie, a 22-year-old bar manager from Pittsburgh, says her mom's rooting for her and she's excited as well. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Christina J, a 27-year-old advertising executive from LA, could count on two hands the number of dates she's been on. I This bears so much resemblance to like an actual video dating, like- you know, yeah. you know, like people go to the video. I, I don't really know how this would work, but you would get tapes of people taping themselves, oh like yes. being like, hi, I have a lonely heart looking for, you know. Yes. Um, wow. I've not thought about that in a really long time. And probably it's because it didn't really exist when we were growing up. Right. Exactly. But I wonder if like that's the most direct predecessor that some this of is, these women have. Honestly, this is the classifieds. Right. Or, yeah. uh, what's a misconnections? You know, this is like. Yeah. That. I'm surprised more of these to, don't run. To life. You know? Right, totally. Okay. So, based on what we've heard and based on what was presented to us on the show, I have no clear sense of who is a front runner. I have no idea who the villain is in right. the series. I I could not tell you. The archetypes that I could I could spot, um th- there was a confident black woman. Mm-hmm. Um there was the sexual trapeze girl. Yep. Um, there was a woman who sort of like set herself up a straw man, um, to characterize herself as explicitly not a snooty bitch. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, you have like, like a career focused, like, or potentially interpreted as a career focused woman. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. I'm not out of these women really finding, um, finding an archetype that we might, might traditionally assign a contestant to prior to a season or during the first episode. I'm not seeing I'm not seeing the villain. I'm not seeing the wife. I think that that is really presenting mm. as quite a challenge yeah. for me in this first episode. It's so interesting because nowadays those elements are so like clearly underlined uh-huh. that you are guessing from maybe a pool of like three people who have any right. chance of actually winning. The, I mean, Bella and Irina last season. We followed yeah. it all the way through. Holly and Jay and Brooke. They get the sparkly music on night one and we spend 10 minutes getting to know them and we learn so much about them and right. everybody else comments on them and we don't hear some of their names at all. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, some of the other women because they weren't going to win from the night, from the, from right, the moment right. they stepped out of the limo or whatever. And so part of that makes this a really interesting TV product in that way because- we're leveling the playing field. Right. It feels on some level like the people making the show, even though they're probably doing most of the editing after the fact, it mm. is being approached like they don't know who wins either. Fully. And that's fascinating for this show because you don't get to see that. So this cocktail party, it looks, strangely enough, kind of like an actual party, or at least what I remember of yeah. one. Uh, or at least like, you know, a semi-formal sort of like singles mixer or something. Um Alex asks a group of women to remind him of their names, which I think is so good. Uh, also, like, it fucking abs- absolutely would not help. <laughs> In no way. No. Amy, a 28-year-old production coordinator, says she's tried all types of dating, even online dating. <laughs> and then she holds her fingers over her nose and she waves her hand in front of her and she goes, P-U. 
Uh, so, you know, she may as well give this a try. Can't be that bad. Uh, neuropsychologist Daniela appears to be the first woman we see get genuine one-on-one alone time, which she uses to say she was born in Berlin and then they cut away from her. Great. <laughs> I think it's it's funny. I, I think it's funny how many of these moments feel super momentous, but just not to the show itself. Totally. Like, if we're to look at this through the um, the docutition Venn diagram, we're leaning way more heavily into the docu and way less mm. into the titian. Mm. And I think that that is what is making it feel so momentous. Right. Alex asks Angelique, an actress from Burbank, California, how he's going to know whether she's acting or being genuine. To which she says, oh, I wouldn't do that to you. I'm just like, buddy, this is a whole season storyline coming up, you know? This is incredible. Alexa makes a key strategic play. She is the first to give The Bachelor something to remember her by, a tactic which will continue to play out to this day. What does she choose? She hands Alex a tiny little pocketbook called Dating for Dummies. (laughs) Alex is very, very impressed by this gift. He's like, thank you very, very much. Love this. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, Alex also loves uh, learning that Angela works part-time at Hooters in addition to her desk job <laughs> at an insurance company. Um, that is, I'm, I'm going to say it, that is foreshadowing for some stuff that happens later in this season. Uh, we'll get to it. Uh, but yeah, so these conversations, it, it's it's not all that effortless, you know? Uh, these ones seem to be going pretty well, but some of them are a little bit trickier. Lisa, this intimidating attorney from Dallas, tells Alex a story which involves her talking to her dog and then her dog talks back or something. <laughs> I think it plays out okay, but Alex is clearly not like in sync with her. He's like, what is happening here? He's like, yeah. And then like the back half of this conversation plays out in slow-mo and then voiceover, she says she wasn't happy with how the conversation went. And it's pretty rough. I would say this is our first like breaking of the rules or our first establishing of like something you shouldn't do. Right, right. And this is also notable because it doesn't have the crazy music behind it. Right. Like nowadays it would be like, (laughs) what, what? Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, it's it's uh, overwhelming how much the music is just the same thing on loop throughout all of this. Totally. Alex ITMs that Melissa has a lot of things that are good on paper, but, quote, I'm not sure that the total package is getting me. Translation, I hate her. I hate her, yeah. Uh, he also reveals that Shannon, who was the last out of the limo, also brought a little tchotchke for him. It is a find your way compass, which I assume is just a compass, mm-hmm. uh, with a note that says, who knows where this journey will take any of us. Cute, Here's I thought. a little something so you'll always be able to find your way. This was fucking great. This mm-hmm. is like strong, like understanding the assignment, like getting what this show is and will be for 20 years type of shit. I think we owe a lot to Shannon. Yeah. Truly, for though, better or like, for worse, yeah. we owe a lot to Shannon. I think it, I, the first time that I watched this episode, I didn't, I for some reason looked away or whatever. I didn't see the dating for dummies thing. And mm. I thought this compass is the most momentous first gift. Yeah. That, and, and it just wasn't, unfortunately. <laughs> so, like, we have to give credit to dating for dummies. 
Yeah, yeah. Look, it's a pretty good second gift. I would say that um, sometimes you want to come second, Zave. That's true. Hey, mm. that's a lesson in life and love. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, at one point, Alex is chatting to Rhonda and Tina off to one side. Incredible and then we... 2002 names. <laughs> When's the last time you met a Rhonda? Like, Rhonda is 50 now, and it makes perfect sense. That's true. <laughs> um, but then we see what I think you could technically describe as the first steal. Except that instead of one woman interrupting their chat and saying, can I steal you away? It is a stampede. Yeah. All 23 of the other women rush up to dilute the conversational waters. The first interruption is, in fact, a group interruption. Right. I love this. It's like uh, they, they've joined a, they've started a union. <laughs> <laughs> a holy union? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, they all got married while nobody was looking. Great, great. <laughs> If the camera crew was a little bigger, they would have noticed it. <laughs> and then, ting, 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 ting. Chris Harrison whisks Alex away, telling him, it's decision time, my friend. And the two arrive at the deliberation room for a candid chat. What is the deliberation room? <laughs> it's a special room in the mansion. And Chris gestures towards this weird blocky piece of wooden furniture upon which 25 framed portraits of the women are it's placed. It's like a shrine. It is absolutely insane. This is the defining, maybe apart from roses, this mm. is like the defining iconic visual element, I think, of this episode and absolutely. of the first night of the show. Like, because we haven't figured out things like putting a billion candles everywhere, putting roses, you know, flowers everywhere, having everyone dressed up in tuxes and evening gowns and stuff like that. You know, mm -hmm. this is one of the things that they were like, this is part of the show. Right. And it is- you know, yeah, this weird, like, I don't even know exactly what it is. It's like a dresser, maybe, with like a million different compartments. And then there's 25 framed portraits of the women placed all over it, but in this bizarre layout where, like, one woman is way up out of reach and another one is, like, down at shin height. <laughs> Two of them are balanced on an open drawer that's just out of the the furniture, and at least three of them are placed directly in front of another one. You know that they bought this out of the classifieds. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, this is maybe the funniest single frame of The Bachelor, I think. It's so funny because it-, it uh, So, it's also very morbid. Don't you think it feels like it uh, awake or something? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're looking at the picture of the person who has passed and you're like, oh, memories. Totally. Um, the thing about creating this segment mm. is that you're going in thinking, as the producer, if I was to put myself in those shoes, you're thinking something like, we're going to get great dramatic tension here, mm -hmm. and probably also we're going to get him talking it out with the host. And, like, maybe Chris picks up one of the portraits and goes, like, oh, what did you think of- What did you think of you her? Know, yeah, yeah. Denise And it's interesting. Maybe they did film that. Maybe they didn't. But we mm. don't get to see any of it. Right, right. Um, I also love the various levels that they're all placed on and some mm. of them being in front of the others. Because I'm like, if the producers are being smart, if it was the modern day producers, these are very strategically placed. Absolutely. So that, you know- the ones at eye level, the ones that he's most likely to look at are the ones that they want to keep around. And the mm -hmm. one who's down at fucking shin level 
like we want gone straight away because she ate too much at the buffet table or something, you know? Right, right. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think they were just like, fuck, we bought this furniture thinking there was room and there is just not room. (laughs) (laughs) To get conspiratorial about it. Please. Okay. That's what this podcast is all about. My thought is that they probably filmed it. Chris probably coached him through this experience as best he knew how to do as someone who was also, we should flag, extremely new to this. Right. A young guy. Yeah. A young guy doing this show for the first time and not the entrenched figure that we might have seen him as two or three years ago before he was unceremoniously dumped. Yeah, yeah. The um, my, my guess is that they may have filmed it but realised that this was a much more important tool for production than it was for the... Mm that it was for the show to to show the audience. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. having this amount of, well, we think this woman's good. Yeah. You know, and having a voice for that, probably, uh, uh, you know, if I was if I was to posit a guess, maybe that is where that was figured out. Like we might be able to have an element of control over the narrative that we're trying to shape. Mm. Were Or should they have been at that time starting to think about how they were going to shape whatever narrative this is? Totally. Yeah. And the other thing to bear in mind as well is that because so many people are being sent home on night one, you can have this thing look a lot less comedic in the weeks to come. Absolutely. And we should flag 10 people are going home tonight. We're culling 20, wait, 40% of the cast on the first evening, which is insane. Is this also where Chris Harrison sits him down and says, it's time for us to have a serious talk? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, Right. Love yeah, this. Yeah, I love this because Chris is like putting his big boy pants on. I think Chris in a lot of this kind of looks like Alex's little brother. Mm. Like just that there's a size difference there. There's a difference in the way they carry themselves. And Chris like trying to grapple for this figure of authority because like obviously he gets there. He is the he is the you know steady hand at the center of this season for of, of this series for, for years. Mm. But he just hasn't quite got the gravitas just yet. No, no, he's learning as he goes, and I think that's fascinating. The other yeah. thing that I thought was really interesting about this was that we are two-thirds of the way through the episode when we right. enter the deliberation room, which means that we are now about to spend the final mm. third of the episode, final 15 minutes, mm. with a deliberation room and a rose ceremony, which is too much time to spend <laughs> on a man robotically handing out roses (laughs) yeah you're absolutely right it's funny how like i bet an audience member seeing this for the first time would kind of be on the edge of their seat just being like yeah what else are they going to introduce like i feel like the first time i watch many reality tv shows i'm just like that's part of this and you need to go into this room now or whatever you know like i feel like that's true they are floating by on a lot of that at this point whereas now like we're so used to to many of these elements that we are looking for it to be more interesting right Right, but, but this is the currency that they're trading on is the newness of the experience, I guess. Right, right, exactly. And that's kind of all they have. And it may be all they needed at the time. It's I kind think so, of, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Alex tells Chris that he's taking the deliberation seriously because he's already starting to have feelings for some of the women. Love that. That That's a that's a big thing. In, that's in positive. Batchy, you know? Glad you're taking the experience seriously, bro. Sure, yeah. Um, and we're treated to what I'm going to speculatively say might be the first Ponder shots. Uh, you know, the ponder shot where they normally like look out above, above the, the horizon or, you know, mm-hmm. out or, or, you know, into the natural world or whatever. We kind of just have Alex standing there alone. You know, Chris walks out of the room and Alex is surveying the frames 
and uh, you know, he's picking them up and there's audio of like general party chatter with like a eerie amount of reverb that rises to the <laughs> foreground here as if he's being like tortured by their voices, you know, in yeah. the back of his head. Really odd. They, I mean, so this is um, one of two of these kinds of shots in this episode that also took me a bit by surprise. So the pondering shot, because it is so well-established and so tenured, mm. the other one is the slow motion looking at women and nodding shot. Yeah, yeah. Excruciating. Yeah, yeah. these women telling him during the cocktail party, like, this is my life story, and he is just sitting there, He's like, and uh-huh. we see, like, and they put it in slow motion. <laughs> it's really funny and <laughs> extremely excruciating mm. for them to do this groundwork of, like, he's the bachelor, and he listens to you when you talk. Right, right. And especially because so much of it is trying to pre- be- uh, they're trying to present so much of it in such a naturalistic way where, mm. you know, at least comparatively with The Bachelor that we're used to now, um, you know, it is people having conversations and people being a bit awkward and, you know, that totally. kind of stuff. And yeah, then, yeah. you know, it's it's just like you're there, you know, they're trying to convey the sense that you're in the room with them. And then they have these couple of little moments of like cinematic, you know, technique or whatever, just to heighten the experience a little. So just like that, it's basically time for the rose ceremony. Um, the women gather in a long semicircle on the floor. There are no bleaches. They're all at level height uh, in the lounge room. And they're all standing with their hands neatly folded in front of them like it's school photo day. Um, very cultish vibe, I will say. Oh, and this absolutely. is something that we say about, that people say about The Bachelor, you know, all the time. But mm. it, something about just how low rent it is, I guess, is just like, we are all gathered for the one purpose of the ceremony. <laughs> of receiving the rose. Right. Yeah, you, no, you're absolutely right that nothing feels more cultish than a man standing and staring observantly at 25 framed pictures of different women on a bizarrely shaped dresser <laughs> and then transitioning into a room with dim light where he will ceremoniously hand out flowers to some but not all of the women who are of, gathered. Of those women from the portraits. <laughs> God, what a show. And it was a hit. Uh, interestingly, Chris Harrison here adds, and sort of underlining our earlier point, he says, I need to remind you that you are totally empowered here. Interesting. Uh, you don't have to accept his invitation. If you don't think that The Bachelor is someone you might end up marrying or want to marry, you can reject his informa- in- invitation and prepare to leave the show. I like this for two reasons. One, the use of the word over, uh, empowered is really interesting because mm. um, this is obviously a big criti- criticism that is leveled against uh, particularly The Bachelor uh, for, for many years and probably <laughs> like justifiably so. Um, for sure. But it's fascinating that it was baked into the format of the show. Right. Um, I also like that he refers to it as a show because we yeah. are so used to him you know, or, or anybody referring it to like a journey the or journey, the this process, yeah. this experience or whatever. Um, so for him to just be like, yeah, we're on TV. We're making a show. You see these cameras? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we have a rose ceremony. It is kind of like what a rose ceremony is these days. Alex picks up the roses one by one from this little stand that is in front of him. But the fact that it's directly in front of him means that when each of the women come up to collect the rose. Oh, that's why that's so weird. They get a little kiss on the cheek, but they're like leaning over it every time. Yeah, he's leaning over this big lectern <laughs> to try and get a re- Like, why would they- Yeah, like this is one of the things that they definitely would have learned. Right, exactly. And like come next season, they probably put a little masking tape for him to stand on that's next to it instead of behind it 
But mm-hmm. yeah, you just don't know this stuff until you see it back in the fucking monitor and you're like, oh, that's a bit. Well, we can't ask them all to shuffle around. Yeah, let's just go on with it. We'll fix it yeah, later. For sure. Um, there's also no voiceover that reinforces the narratives here. And that is a, a hugely uh, different element in the sense that you're just like, wait, which one was she? Was she the one who, instead of being like, I hope I get a rose because we had a great chat on the whatever. And like, you yeah, know, I need to learn no more about X or yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That we only get one voiceover throughout the whole thing, I believe mm. throughout the whole ceremony. And it's a really prescient one. Do you, do you have it written down? I didn't there? write it down. Do you have it? Okay. Yeah. I do actually. Yeah. Okay. So he says, "Do it again." I had feelings for Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> no, what he says is the women who do have roses are happy, and the women who don't have roses are angry. <laughs> Thank fuck you are putting that Harvard education to good use. Mate. <laughs> Look, you might be confused because honestly, mm. honestly, Max, does it make mm. that much more sense for the women to get a rose and then be sent home? Like, <laughs> yeah, is that no, so? Right. Is that yep. so wrong? Maybe they yep. get it as a parting gift. You know, he's this really yeah, he's yeah, putting he's it like, down there. He's like, listen up, Joe Six Pack, watching at home. Here's oh how it God. works. Great twist. What the farewell rose? Yeah. Imagine this. Okay, so we're bringing this to season ten of The Bachelor Australia. Right on. And yes. Osh is like. Normally, you want the invitation to the batch pad. You want to be the first one invited into the business lounge. You want the double delight rose. This time, it's the poison chalice. So, is he telling this to the camera at the start? No, he's telling this to the women at the cocktail party. Oh, okay. Like, instead of Jimmy or the instead of the bachelor wandering around the cocktail party with this good rose that he's going yeah, to yeah, bestow yeah. on some woman, imagine if it was the other way and it was the kiss of death rose where he's going to send someone home cruelly mm-hmm. out of the blue. I love it. I love it. But think about it this way. Mm. What if he- what if Osha begins the show and says, welcome to the historic 10th season of The Bachelor Australia. We're so thrilled to be back. The viewers all, you know, we listened to a great podcast about it and they convinced us we should do it again. We had a great idea. Yada, yada. Um, mm. Love Max and Xavier, executive producers of the show, etc. Uh, here's the twist for this season. If you get a rose, you're going home. But oh. he doesn't tell the women. And so what you have at the end of the night, half these women are fucking out of there. They thought they were sitting pretty. Oh, I love that. If you did receive a rose, please take the time to say goodbye. Bombshell. Uh, we see... What, one thing that I do like is that it seems to be playing out pretty much in time with when it happens. You know what I mean? Like, normally the rose ceremony takes place over hours and hours and hours, and people are yep. getting exhausted, and that's how they get the shots of people being like, oh, my God, you know, like, stressing yeah. out, that kind of thing. It's because they've been standing in the same place in their heels for fucking hours, and it's 3 a.m. Here... Everybody's kind of comfortable. <laughs> right. Know? Everyone's chill. It's and, okay. Yeah. And like, you know, you're getting these like subtle natural reactions from the group and they're not shying away from showing them. Yeah. So like Tina, you know, gets given a rose and she sticks her tongue out pretending like she doesn't want it. And then the women all laugh. Yeah. Alexa says, woohoo, baby, when she's big. <laughs> I, ju- I kind of just like that because it's like that. A uh, genuine human element of spontaneity and niceness mm. gets sanded off. <laughs> you Imagine know what I if mean? that stuck. You know, well, what I mean? yeah. like so. There are some things here that that stuck and endured for a really long time. There are others that absolutely didn't. Mm. I wonder why the walking down 
the platform to The <laughs> Bachelor to accept your rose and saying some quip yeah. didn't stick around. I feel like that would be a great one. They should bring that back. Yeah. Well, you do get it from time to time. I mean, like, mm-hmm. there there are some famous quips that I can think of. Like, Steph uh, Crothers had an incredible one on Honey Badger. Oh, yeah. Where she said, shaved like, my leg for this. I shaved yeah. my legs for this. <laughs> you said leg? I think she yeah, did Yeah, I both. shaved a single leg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's an opportunity for that, but I think it's not a focus. Whereas here, they're like, we're going to present this how, how pretty much how it happened. I more mean it in celebration. Like, oh, I see. You get picked. How are you dancing down to get your <laughs> yeah. rose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, so, I mean, you know, if anybody's curious, the rose order goes like this. Amanda, <laughs> Kathy, Trista, Lanice, Tina, Christina, Katie, Alexa, Angelique, Amy, Melissa, Angela, Kim, Shannon, and Rhonda. So Chris Harrison, Rhonda. Rhonda made it. Uh, Chris Harrison tells the remaining 10 women to take a moment and say their goodbyes. The beginning of his famous line, uh, which ushers is slightly different. Um, so it's farewell to Amber, Daniela, Denise, Jackie, Jill, Christina, Lisa, Paula, Rachel, and Wendy. And the only woman that we really saw for more than a split second in this list was Lisa, the intimidating attorney from Dallas. And even she seems pretty blindsided by it. She, in yeah. The, in an in the moment, she says, you'd have to ask him. I think I'm pretty great. But there's no, like, this is why. Or, like, you know, there, there's not a single one of these people, people where you're like, you shouldn't have said that thing about this. Or, yeah. you know. Oh, that's really true. We like, don't have. Go on. We don't have any sense of of reasoning of why these women have been sent home. Like, for example, the this, oh, this is quite interesting. The the woman who I thought would stick around because I found her confessional to be quite funny mm-hmm. was the school teacher Rachel. Right. Um. Twenty nine teaches year six, mm-hmm. and she was like, I was like, oh, this woman's funny. She could she could hang around and be good TV for a little minute. Right. But instead, no, sent home in the first episode. Right. And I was like, but why? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's people who are like, you know, I'm looking for a guy with direction, focus, and knows where he wants to be. Sorry, you've gone, you're gone. Despite the fact that, like, he's a Harvard grad, he's very educated, and he's working in business, like, that's exactly right, right. what it is, you know. So why doesn't he want you? Right. Or, like, you know, I, um, I want to have children someday, and owning a private practice means that I can take time off to raise a family. Sorry, you get in the boot, you know? Gotta go. Yeah. Uh, very, very strange. You have to wonder if it's just, like, you know... He's just picking people he thinks are good looking or, you know, like what is going into it? We will never know. Right. Is is it like a producer pick? Is there a possibility that that's happening at this point? Because like, I don't even know who they would be spotlighting to be the producer's pick right now. They need to get this done in a really tight amount of time. You know, we've got six weeks to to shoot this series. Who knows where it's going to go? Genuinely, do they go overseas? Do they travel? Who can say? But in terms of what their budget is to to hire this mansion and do this pilot, you need to get in and get out, baby. So the episode ends as the US show so often does with the lead proposing a toast with the remaining suitors. Alex says, thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad you all accepted your roses. And I'm really excited. They're, that looms mm. over this so much. It's so interesting. Uh, I'm really excited for the chance to get to know you all. I'm really excited for the chance to get to know you all better. Here's to you. Cheers. And they all touch their champagne flutes together, which are all clearly full of either completely flat champagne, like from days ago, or like some fucking grape <laughs> juice or something. Wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. And, uh, you know, next week we get a little teaser of what's to come. The women are going to be introduced to the mansion. We're going to find out what the hell a group mm. date is. 
so much to come. I can't remember exactly what happens in the next episode. Um, but yeah, that's the end of our recap of the very first episode. Did you like it? I did like it. It's kind of a big question. Yeah. I was, as I was rewatching it, probably the third time I've watched that episode, I'm like, is this good? I- it's, it's really hard. <laughs> Which is a like, big question. Based on what my understanding and experience of this show is, it was anthropologically interesting, but I don't know if yes. I thought it was fun. And I generally right. like TV that I think is is fun, you know? <laughs> I think I agree. I think I agree. And in the sense, I mean, I guess we are approaching this from the quite specific perspective of an anthropologist <laughs> studying an ancient artifact, you know, like that is the, that is the idea behind this right. series. Um, and so, you know, a lot of my attention was paid to like where things have come since yeah. then or whatever. There are elements that simply don't make any sense to me. Like the way that nothing is really set up or right. paid off. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm fascinated by it me more than too. anything else. And I do think like anybody who has watched any of the shows from the past few years Stands to learn a lot, stands to gain a lot just from going back and being like, geez, this was a big enough hit that they were able to keep doing this for I know. 20 years. That, that is the thing that I am a bit flummoxed by. But then also, if you were to mm. look at the first season of Survivor, you know, that that premiere mm. is, is kind of rough as well. They took years to really find a great groove, but they had excellent moments throughout that first season and really inventive defining moments for reality TV competition as a as a genre that Well it's tough because half of that first cast died. Because they were like, oh, can they live yeah. out here? And then they yeah. just all and starved and died. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that's that's gonna cast a downer over your first season of TV. And I will not spoil whether or not that happens on the Bachelor season one. Was was the Living Alliance versus the Dead Alliance <laughs> lopsided? Who can say? <laughs> Uh, please don't spoil it. <laughs> it's yeah. catch up. On uh, I also want to say uh, this is the other thing that I'm just looking out mm-hmm. for. We're in the pre-pocket rocket era. It occurred to me during this oh, episode. Yeah. Um, we have one one refer to herself as a spark plug. Yeah, you're right. Another one is a little ball of fire. Is pocket rocket an Australianism? I don't know. I don't know either. I feel like maybe yeah. not. I feel like I've heard it on like US Paradise. I think yeah. Look, the pocket like demi rock, has been so... described. Sorry, what were you saying? I was just saying that the pocket is yet to rock. So yeah. well, I'll be keeping my eye out. Yeah. Uh, I went to Japan in the late 1970s and I had this delicious like biscuit candy that was themed after a big boxing movie that had just come out. Great. Okay. Um, I forget what it was called anyway. Uh, Max, in lieu lieu of social media gains, here's the thing. Some of these people just fucking don't exist anymore. You know, yeah. this happened so long ago that there was no there was no logging this online at the time. There was no like widely publicized like these are the people. You know, some of these people you can find their last names, but it's totally. not like we can go through and be like, oh, they got an uptick on <laughs> their social yeah, media. Yeah. You know. Uh so instead of doing that, we're not gonna do that all this season. But I have a new thing that I want to do with you. And Excellent. I think you will enjoy it. And I don't I know you don't know what this is. I've got instead no of idea social media is. gains. Let's play, I wish the start of this sentence rhymed more, some historic games. Okay. So, this episode of The Bachelor aired on March 25th, 2002. And I think Mm. it would make for an interesting little bit of context to discuss what was going on in the culture at this time. Love it. So, each week, I'm going to ask my co-host, Max Quinn, about a different thing that's going on in the world each episode. 
Oh, I love it. I know nothing about what's going on in the world. <laughs> this I'm is gonna, really good. I'm going to softball it to you for the start. I feel like this is, you know, Max Quinn, you're my friend. You're my bandmate. You've worked mm-hmm. in radio for many years. You're a passionate music lover. So mm-hmm. I wonder if you can, with a little bit of help from me, guess yes. the top five charting singles on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for the week ending March 30th, 2002. Oh, geez. So I am here to give you clues because I know nobody could just pull this stuff. First of all, these are all songs that I know and I could hum to you based on their titles alone. So I'm confident that you'll be familiar with them as well. I have got them open in front of me. And I just wonder, you know, you can ask some opening questions if you want. If you Mm want to go one, you know, we can go one at a time. Obviously, I'll tell you if you get one of the other ones. But like, let's let's start with number five. Um, Okay. This is a song which is an artist featuring another artist. Okay. Is it Ashanti featuring Ja Rule? It is not, but you have guessed the artist of number four. <sighs> Great. Okay. So, the thing is, it's not Ashanti featuring Ja Rule. This is it's- actually Ja Rule featuring Ashanti. Oh, shit. Um, I, okay. So, what's a Ja Rule song? Fuck me. I feel like this is maybe the only Ja Rule song that I know. And the hook, the chorus, is sung Mm. by Ashanti. Yes. And the verses are sung by Ja Rule. Oh, always on time. That's right. That's right. So you've guessed number four. You call and you're always on time. Okay, Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So um, number five. Number five is a duo. Okay. Well, it's a it's a one person featuring another person. Okay. Um, I can tell you that the song title is a question. And the uh the last word before the question mark is misspelled, although I guess you may not necessarily remember that. Okay. Um, is it misspelled in the sense that it is like a letter U or something like that? The letter U is featured, but it is not the letter U on its own. But the featuring um, artist I know from many other songs, I may as well say it, including Always On Time. Okay, so this is an Ashanti song. No? Something featuring Ja Rule? It is something featuring Ashanti. I think about us when you think about trust. What's love? You got it. You got it. Yeah. That's What's number love? five. What's love? Great. Fat Joe featuring Fat Joe. Ashanti. Yeah. yeah. I have questions. Okay, please. We've got three more to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I looking at a... I mean, around this time, you're looking at... Films being film soundtracks. We're we looking at film soundtracks. Uh, I feel like these, all of these songs have been in films, but mm. I don't think that they are in the top three because of their appearance in films. I could be wrong. Okay, but we're not looking at, for example, like Accidentally in Love or, no. um, you know, uh, All Star by Smash Mouth or something N- like that. No, although they're both around a similar time period. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are we still sitting in that vein of of hip hop? I would say we have kind of finished with hip hop. Really? Okay. Are we? Would you say that R and B exists in this sphere? Like, I think number one has has that flavor to it. Mm-hmm. But I would. There's another. There's another genre that I would say first. A more specific okay. and maybe more geographically specific type of genre. Okay. So is it Shakira wherever, whenever? It is not. But you're barking up the right tree. Is it Enrique Iglesias' hero? It is not, but you are still barking up the right tree. And that's number one. That's the number one. If we want, we can come back to it. Let's come back to it. What else have you got for me? Okay. 
Um, the other two are both by bands. Nickelback? This is how you remind me? Correct. That is number three. Okay. Hit Canadian band Nickelback with their really bad song, How You Remind Me. I was thinking about it the other day. Mm-hmm. I reckon that's a good song. Anyway, we got two left. We got one which is in the same sort of ballpark as your Enrique Glacius and your, uh, who else did you say? Shakira. Shakira, same ballpark with a featuring, you know, a prominent artist who <sighs> is a true icon of film and music. Um, this is maybe Nelly her Furtado? second biggest. Ooh, did I say her? Uh, uh, it is not Nelly Furtado. It, um, let is, me tell. Let me it... tell you the genre. We're talking about Latin pop. Oh, it's Ricky Martin. It is not Ricky Martin. Okay. Are we talking about Jennifer Lopez? We are talking about Jennifer Lopez. I w- oh, that's really interesting because I would not have... Okay, so is it I'm real? Oh, wait, no. Is it um, Jenny from the Block? No, earlier, I think, than that. Okay. Um, I would not have associated her with, with Latin pop, but of, of course she is. Um, I would say this song maybe more than any other. Really? Okay. Mm. It's, uh, it's... Okay, it has a very similar title to a Paramore song. And let's say you might charitably use its title to describe our podcast. Let's get loud. <laughs> no, no. Normally we master our episodes a little too quietly, actually. Mm, I would say too. Uh, what about other J-Lo songs that I know? Does it have? Does it also have Ja Rule in it? It does have Ja Rule in it. Yeah. What's that one? I don't know. No. What's it called? Ain't It Funny. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I know that song. That's oh, crazy. Oh, really? Oh, you gotta. I mean, get around it. Okay, all it's, right. I'll look that one up. Incredible piece of music. Jennifer Lopez, ain't it funny? Oh, so there's actually. I'm just looking at this now. There's two versions of "Ain't It Funny." There's um a "Ain't It Funny" murder remix, which is the Ja Rule version, oh. and then there's also "Ain't It Funny," which is a completely different song. But um, they have the same. She's released two songs called "Ain't It Funny" in the same year. Really? Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, so the song was marketed as a remix of the original song, Ain't It Funny, but is actually an entirely different song with the same title. Wow. Okay. Why not? Go off, JLo. That's cooked. Okay. Okay. So 2002 bands, all right? Uh, Matchbox 20. No. I think you ought to try and narrow it down a little bit more. Okay. Um, is it Rap Rock? Yeah. Is it Linkin Park? It is. Okay. Mm, is it... Okay, so in the end? Yeah, no, that's yeah, the one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I handed that to you. you but did. that's So the top five, What's Love, Fat Joe featuring Ashanti, Always on Time, Ja Rule featuring Ashanti, How You Remind Me, Nickelback, In the End, Linkin Park, and Ain't It Funny, Jennifer Lopez featuring Ja Rule. I've got some homework to do. I've never heard that last one before in my life. Interesting. Well, it, it'll be a good place setter for, uh, for next week's episode when we dive back in. Spish. To April Fool's Day 2002, when episode two of The Bachelor began to air. And sea staring, all within the same day. (laughs) (laughs) I really love that game. That was great. Thank you. Listeners, that does bring us to the end of the inaugural episode of The Bachelor of Hearts Presents Ancient History, season one, episode one of The Bachelor. My do you guys get it? Queen. Because it's like history, but it's you get, like yeah. kiss. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. You do this. Because it was um, kissing on the show. Them things. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Max Quinn here, Xavier RN there. If yep. you want to be friends with us, the best place to do it is, uh, in fact, in the Bachelor of Hearts Osh posting group that we have on Facebook. It is a beautiful, small community full of people who love the show and, and love talking about how TV gets made. So if that's you, like-minded you want to weirdos. Yeah. If you want yeah. to join the circus of ragtag <laughs> misfits. <laughs> Come on down, scream, roll up, roll up. As we hand you a rose. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Look, it's great in there. It's it's usually me posting and everybody has a great time. We have a great time. We love you. <laughs> uh, yeah, but otherwise, uh, come find us on social media at BOH Pod. You can find Maxi at Max Quinn. You can find me at Xavier RN. Um, what else? We're going to do another one of these next week. That's yeah. basically it. Thanks Look. for paying attention to us and validating our existences. We Love it, listeners. Until Shout next out time. To the Zaveheads. Oh, almost got Nearly there. Nearly got away from out. me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, get vaccinated. What else? Wear a seatbelt. What do we usually say? You vaccine. Wear a seatbelt. Shout put out a seatbelt. If you're transporting vaccines, put a seatbelt on the vaccines because we need stuff. to keep those things safe. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're transporting unvaccinated people, transport them to the vaccination center. That would be if you can. My yeah, advice. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Great. Yeah. Um, well, listeners, we love you. We love you. Save heads! Goodbye! Shit! Running out of time, making most of what's before me, searching for.